0: Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ 91.5. In deep humility, I'm Steve Bynum sitting in for the great Jerome McDonald. An estimated one million Hong Kongers took to the streets last Sunday to protest a bill that's working its way through the country's legislative committee. The bill would enable Hong Kong to extradite its citizens to countries it does not have extradition agreements with, like China, The Legislative Committee has seen its own share of protest as arguments over the bill descended into blows, leaving one Hong Kong lawmaker hospitalized last month. Earlier today, I spoke with Tom Grundy. He's editor-in-chief of the Hong Kong Free Press. And we started by talking about the implications of the proposed law.
1: Well, certainly this law has led to the largest protest probably in Hong Kong uh, history, uh, bringing, as organizers said, a million protesters onto the streets on Sunday very controversial. It was uh, first tabled in February as a reaction to a murder case involving a Hong Konger in Taiwan. Um, But this law, this uh, update to the extradition laws in Hong Kong will apply to any jurisdiction with which there are no existing agreements um, with the city. And that includes mainland China as well as Taiwan, and that's where the controversy arises, as there is a very different uh, legal system uh, just a few miles north of the border in autonomous Hong Kong here, uh, over in China, uh, where human rights provisions and the rule of law um, are very different to the uh, British system of common law that uh, Hong Kong has inherited. So people are very worried in different sectors in Hong Kong about um, what could happen, and they feel that uh, they could... Uh, face trial on the mainland um, if they are a dissenting voice against uh, Beijing.
0: So let's give an example of um, what uh, a law like this could mean. So, for instance, if um, a journalist were to uh, print something that was unflattering, or if, uh, let's say, for instance, in in the democracy protest movement, if uh, Beijing disapproved of the protest in some kind of way, uh, what are sort of the repercussions of what this could mean? In practical It's terms. very difficult to
1: say how it may be used, actually, because there is a history of these uh, rules being applied in very vague and broad ways. And although uh, journalism and these kinds of things are meant to be uh, protected, there is just uh, a huge mistrust, I think, in the local and the national uh, authorities in Hong Kong. So that's why you see various sectors who generally aren't meant to speak up or very rarely speak up, such as journalists, such as lawyers, even judges um, who are not meant to you know, give such opinions. Uh, publicly, have um, been registering their criticism. And that's alongside uh, teachers, unions, um, pretty much artists. Every, every sector of Hong Kong has been uh, signing hundreds of different petitions. Uh, and now we've seen over a 100 businesses just today um, say that they will enact a, a labor strike. Um, so every lever and sort of every uh, sector of, of Hong Kong is speaking up against it um, because they are not sure how it may be applied uh, in the future, if
0: not immediately. And so, uh, for instance, there's a lot. Of, was it recently put on the books about the national anthem uh, in China? In that, um, in any way disparaging the national anthem, or lampooning the national anthem, or using the national anthem in um, parodies or videos, could also make you subject to um, to penalties and to jail time.
1: Well, that's next on the legislative agenda, yes. I mean, the extradition law is uh, being accelerated through the local parliament, and it's going to rave in the main chamber on Wednesday, and it could be passed by next Thursday. And um, right after the um, break in the summer, um, we'll be looking at the national anthem law. Uh, and that, many have uh, said, is, is the most uh, draconian incursion to uh, free speech uh, in the city. Yes in, yes, in what is meant to be uh, a bastion of free expression you know, in Asia. Um, but, yes, that law um, could see people getting years in jail for parodying or mocking the national anthem. And to be honest, as journalists, it's unclear to us what would happen if we filmed someone doing so. And how that will link into the extradition law, uh, we're unsure, but that's actually being tabled for local legislation. Um, all of this, the wider picture is part of um, what many uh, Democrats fear is an increasing encroachment of uh, Beijing on the city's civil liberties. And since those uh, 2014 pro-democracy umbrella movement uh, protests, uh, there's certainly been a, a clampdown on the civil society and, and uh, civil liberties in the city with uh, Democrats uh, jails over organizing umbrella movement um, uh, parties banned from standing from election, political parties outright banned from uh, existing, and and some lawmakers ousted um, from from the legislature. So um, we often have these uh, analogies of a slow boiling frog or death by a thousand cuts when it comes to freedoms in Hong Kong. But uh, for a lot of um, academics, democrats, and different sectors here, uh, they see this as, as as accelerating now this process of integrating the city into China.
0: Tom Grundy is editor-in-chief and co-founder of Hong Kong Free Press, and he's on the scene in Hong Kong as a law is winding its way through the legislature that could make it a lot easier for Beijing to extradite people from Hong Kong on various charges or for various reasons. So, Tom, you you are there on the scene. Uh, What have you been witnessing?
1: Well, things seem to be calm right at the moment, but uh, there there are some more impromptu protests uh, planned for a few hours from now. And as the uh, law uh, arrives at the Main Legislative Chamber tomorrow, there has been a a lot of uh, viral buzz online about gathering for a big picnic. Um, There are are some colonial-era laws in Hong Kong that forbid illegal assembly, public nuisance, and inciting uh, people, so... um, Sometimes these things are planned in hushed or coded ways, but uh, there are some mainstream protests also planned for tomorrow and the coming days, as well as uh, some Labour strike action. Um, But at the moment, although there were some altercations near the uh, metro station uh, over some uh, police stop and search action, they uh, seem to be uh, quite quiet at the moment. But uh, that's not to say there isn't a hefty police presence all around the government headquarters and the legislature and barricades, and the demonstration area has actually have been closed. Uh, this is just a couple of days after that million-man march uh, ended with uh, some more dramatic scenes, pepper spray, as a handful of demonstrators clashed with police uh, after the protest uh, permit expired at midnight. Uh, our team was down there but. um it's unclear if we're going to see that kind of argy as you might say, in Britain over the next few days. Things are generally quite peaceful in Hong Kong when it comes to uh, protests.
0: And Tom, just to back up, uh, this law has been very contentious in, in the Hong Kong legislature because you do have this division between those uh, democratically elected legislators and those who are appointed by Beijing. Can you talk about that?
1: Well, a lot of the um, pro-Beijing lawmakers are actually also elected in, although when surveys are done over um, who people would prefer to elect, then yes, the, the Democratic and progressive parties tend to do better. Uh, but it is true to say that just in the U.S., as politics is polarized between Trump supporters and those who don't, and in Britain, Remainers and uh, Brexiteers... In, in Hong Kong, things uh, tend to run along this spectrum of pro-Beijing to pro-democracy. And the pro-Beijing lawmakers, which are loyal to the government and, and, uh, and Beijing, are certainly probably going to see this law through next Thursday. Democrats are using all means at their disposal to uh, try and prevent that. Just a few uh, weeks ago, we saw things turn physical in the legislature which is quite rare in Hong Kong, uh, as arguments uh, ensued over who was in charge of the Bills Committee to vet this law. And the government intervened, said that the committee, uh, Bills Committee was not working, and thus uh, it would be accelerated, and that's why we're seeing it in the main chamber uh, tomorrow. So it's been a bumpy ride for this bill already as it moves through the legislature, and despite um, lots of different sections of society speaking out, including quite rarely the Catholic Church today, um, chief executive of the leader, Carrie Lam, is a Catholic. Um, I still think that uh, this law will most likely press, uh, uh, pass with the support of the uh, pro-establishment camp.
0: And speaking of Carrie Lam, can you talk about um, what she's been saying and uh, what side she's taken and um, uh, what her role has been as this uh, law is winding its way through the legislature?
1: Well, Hong Kong's battle leader has, has faced the biggest protest um, in post-colonial history, um, but she is standing firm. And um, just uh, on the morning after the protest, she said that um, the government will continue to explain the law, um, but it will not be uh, budging. Many Hong Kongers perceive the Hong Kong administration to be representing Beijing's interest to them rather than them representing Hong Kong people's interest to Beijing. So they're often seen as managers of public life and uh, and they're not particularly uh, uh, powerful a lot of the time. Um, but uh, Chief Executive Carrie Lam apparently uh, received death threats today over this bill. Um, but this may only uh, bolster uh, the persistence that the government has in ensuring this goes through.
0: And um, so where do, where do things stand now and uh, what are some of the benchmarks that will be coming up and the important votes that we should know about?
1: Well, as I say, tomorrow is when uh, it goes for its second reading, this controversial bill in the main legislative chamber, Uh, We're going to see large protests uh, outside. There's some businesses uh, that have said that they will be enacting a labor strike, which is uh, very rare in the capital of capitalism in Asia, in Hong Kong. Um, And I imagine they've not been announced yet, but we will see uh, protests into the weekend. The organizers last Sunday's Million Man March said that there will be daily protests for the rest of the month. And um, it's It was uh, mentioned today by the uh, de facto speaker of the mini-parliament here that this bill will be voted on next Thursday. So it's happening very fast, despite many sectors asking the government to slow down and there being no rush in it.
0: Tom Grundy is editor-in-chief and co-founder of Hong Kong Free Press, a non-profit English language news source based in Hong Kong. He's on the ground in Hong Kong. Tom, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thank you. It's been a sleepless uh, few days. We haven't seen anything like this Ever to be honest, Um, so yeah, a bit of a manic time. There's a prayer group going on now, and I'm surrounded by cops. So I will, um, I will catch up with you soon, and I'll listen a bit later.
0: Very good. Thanks so much. Take care, Tom.
1: All right. Nice one. Bye bye.
0: Bye bye. You heard Tom Lundy talk that he was witnessing a prayer group going on in Hong Kong. Coming after the break, we'll speak with a couple of people. One, a Chicagoan, who studied the intersection between religion and civil disobedience in Hong Kong. Stay tuned for that on WBEZ 91.5 FM. I'm Steve Bynum. You're listening to Worldview. This is Worldview on WBEZ 91.5. I'm Steve Beineman today for Jerome McDonald. And before the break, we got an on-the-ground report from massive protests in Hong Kong. And you may have heard Tom Grundy from the Hong Kong Free Press talk about how a prayer group was being surrounded by police at that very moment. And religion has played a big part in civil disobedience in Hong Kong and around the world. With me to discuss some of these intersections are Justin C., incoming assistant professor at Singapore Management University. Hi, Justin. hello. And Samuel Chu, a contributing fellow for the Center for Religion and Civic Culture. His father, a Baptist minister, was charged recently with conspiracy to commit a public nuisance for his role in the umbrella movement five years ago. Hello, Samuel. Welcome to World Here.
2: Hi, thank you for having me.
0: And so, Samuel, we'll get to you and um, we'll talk about your father in a moment. But first, I wanted to start with Justin. Justin, you were at a Chicago protest over uh, the Hong Kong bill uh, this past Sunday, and uh, you write in a new op-ed. The op-ed is called This Time I Have a Tradition on Solidarity with the Hong Kong Extradition Protests in Chicago. And you talk about the experience of being at that protest this past Sunday as being not just political, but spiritual and even liturgical in nature. Um, what do you mean by that, Justin? Uh,
3: thanks, Steve, for having me. Um, this is um, one of the things that I thought about in my own journey uh, with Hong Kong protests. Uh, I learned a lot when I went to Hong Kong for uh, for my doctoral fieldwork. Um about democracy, and I learned a lot from uh, Hong Kong democratic um, leaders and their intersections with prayer. Mm. Um, one of the things, one of the traditions that uh, of protest in Hong Kong is to have uh, prayer vigils, either during the protests or before the protests. Um, And so one of the things that really uh, struck me as I was at the Chicago uh, Solidarity Gathering was the presence of pastors and theologians uh, that I recognized uh, from the Chinese Christian community being there uh, giving speeches and also uh, willing to have their pictures taken. And that reminded me of my own journey in um, in discovering this intersection between theology, briefly talk about that nexus. That, that so, oftentimes uh, for for Chinese Christians, uh, there is a divorce between theology and politics. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes in our churches, we 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 will we'll say that you know we don't want to get political. We only want to work on moral issues, uh, and this is not t- this is not. Um, not exclusive to Chinese Christians, but certainly this is a theme that comes up in churches. And so one of the marvelous things about uh, the democracy protests is the merging of those two. And so it often is a surprise to those of us who have grown up in this community, and it's a source of inspiration in our spirituality. So Samuel Chu, your father uh, paid a personal
0: price uh, for his advocacy, and um, can you talk about that intersection between faith and protest in your own life?
2: Yeah, and I think that um, Justin touched on something very important: is that people sometimes forget that Hong Kong has never really existed uh, ever as a open direct democracy, and and you know, British colonial state. You know, I remember growing up there that I always thought of this dynamic of disconnect of people who are in power look different than me. Hmm. They were primarily white. They were primarily people that didn't. I could not see myself in the system that was uh, in power. And that actually has not changed, obviously, in the turnover. I think, um, uh, Tom, I think in the previous segment talked a little bit about the idea that people see uh, Hong Kong government as being this representation of Chinese government um, political will and what they want to see happen. And I think that that disconnect means that there's not necessarily a democratic tradition that people can draw on. Like we do in other um, culture and society, but yet I think what has happened it's that my father, my father being a great example, is that there are other traditions, traditions that has uh, emerged over time in history that has intertwined with other cultures and histories. That they clearly, uh, in the case of my father, um, draws from that faith tradition that is also uniquely Hong Kong. Um, And I think that, you know, this merging of sort of uh, the the Martin Luther King Jr., sort of American civil rights uh, church tradition that merged with the democratic traditions has played a crucial role in a place where how do you teach people to act politically when there has never been a direct way for them to hold people in power accountable? And I think that that's...
0: Yeah. No, please finish.
2: Done.
0: I was going to say it's fascinating because recently we've been having conversations about the legacy of Mahatma Gandhi. Um, they we're celebrating, commemorating the 150th year of his birth. And this is also the 90th year of Martin Luther King's birth. And uh, I've had two conversations about Gandhi, and in those conversations, they both talk about uh, what well, Gandhi saw his activism his um participation in civic life um as a direct contact as a way of connecting with the uh, divine. Justin um I'll have you comment on that. But first uh to not be rude, Samuel, uh please tell us about your father historians tell us how he's doing.
2: Yeah, so as many of you at least might have been following that uh, there were nine uh, protest leaders that were organizers of the Umbrella Movement back in 2014 that went on trial uh, at the end of last year. And then the verdict was handed down, which, you know, as another sign of of the influence of China, uh, Chinese government, we had all pretty much anticipated that they were going to be convicted. And so uh, and I think it is very much important to think about uh, in context of kind of the current in the shadow of this pending extradition law that of the nine leaders that were convicted, four of them who are now actually in prison, including the three leaders uh, of the uh, Occupy Central that started and inspired the protests – one is a sociology professor, mm-hmm. one is a constitutional law lawyer, and one is my father, a retired Southern Baptist minister. And I think that, I think, has given people a very real sense of what the erosion of human rights of what a um, – extradition law could mean for the freedom that we experience in hong kong so my father is currently out uh, he is uh, one of the folks who because of his age and the judge has cited his health reason and his contribution to society as someone who actually had his sentence suspended but i know that that i think in the trial and in the conviction and in the sentencing what it really clearly reviewed was that this is the road that we're going down
0: and your father hasn't stopped. I mean, he's still, you know, getting out there and participating. It hasn't silenced him.
2: And it has not. And and that means that at risk, actually, the suspended sentence could be uh, revoked. And actually, he could be in prison any day being a part of any of these gathering and protests. And, and that's the risk that people are taking now. But I think that what you have seen is that that three people that um, – took on a task of what the government claimed is inciting, Uh, what they did is that they have given people a clear reason and a sense of purpose to say that, you know what, if they are willing to go to jail for standing up for what is right, then we are willing to do the same.
0: I'm, you're listening to Samuel Chu, and I'm Steve Bynum on Worldview on WBEZ 91.5 with Professor Justin C. And we're speaking about the um, Hong Kong protests that are happening in Hong Kong and also here in Chicago. And, uh, t- and this conversation is taking on a, a spiritual element. I wanted to continue back with you, Justin, because, again, we were speaking with um, the grandson of Mahatma Gandhi, as well as a Gandhi historian, about his first um a nonviolent action in South Africa. And um, when we talked about the South African uh, movement, uh, Gandhi made it a point to talk about how you touch God through the, these um, these moments of, of activism and of protest and of standing up for justice and humanity. And um, in the Eastern Christian tradition, of which we are both a part of, yes. um, there's St. Basil the Great, who yes. actually wrote a long treatise on social justice. And um, Pope Francis talks a great deal about social justice and how it has to be the heart of and the manifestation of one's faith. Can you, uh, Justin, talk about that connection?
3: You know, it's really interesting that you bring up um, Gandhi and Martin Luther King. Uh, because uh, the the opening manifesto um, that Benny Tai, the constitutional law professor, wrote uh, that launched Occupy Central with Love and Peace, which was the preparatory movement for uh, for understanding uh, universal suffrage and democracy in Hong Kong in 2013, he actually cites Gandhi and Martin Luther King as his inspirations for understanding civil disobedience, and and the reason he does that is because there there is. Uh, there is a sort of spiritual dimension in the secular, right? It, it, oftentimes, we think about these political activities as uh, as only pertaining to the imminent temporal world, but uh, what Benny Tai was trying to uh, say was that when 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 people's political agency is denied, it's actually a spiritual problem, and so uh, there are these spiritual figures that inspire action on the streets.
0: And it's also important to note that when Gandhi and King speak about nonviolent social action, that in, in speaking in spiritual terms, this is accessible to anyone, whether you're an agnostic or an atheist or Muslim or Buddhist or whatever, it, it's really about um, creating a beloved community and connecting together. And,
3: and, and that's one of the things that, that, that is important to stress also in the Hong Kong case too, right? That, that uh, oftentimes the Hong Kong protests are accused uh, by their opponents as being uh, Christian protests. But there are the presence of not only Christians but also other Cantonese hero deities um, and, and other religious groups that are also represented on the streets. And so the, the common point is that the expression of political agency is a spiritual matter.
0: Absolutely. Justin C. is the incoming professor at the uh, Singapore Management University. And Samuel Chu is a contributing fellow with the Center for Religion and Civic Culture. His father is a Baptist minister who is under charge and under threat for uh, participating in the Umbrella Movement five years ago. Thank you both so much for this um, enjoyable conversation and uh, look forward to keeping up with both of you. And Justin, uh, you're going to be leaving soon, but uh, we're going to call you in Singapore. I'll I'll look forward to that. Samuel, thank you so much. Thank you again. In about 90 seconds, we're going to talk to a man who is the first black African elected mayor in the continent of Europe. Stay tuned for that. I'm Steve Bynum. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ 91.5 FM. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Steve Bynum in today for Jerome McDonald. Marvin Rees is the mayor of Bristol in the UK. And he was in Chicago last week to speak at the Pritzker Forum on Global Cities, hosted by our partner, the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. And he's a fascinating guy for a number of reasons, one of which is that I read that he is the first person of black African heritage to be elected mayor of a European city. So when we're looking at centuries of European history, that sort of smacks you in the face. Is this true? It is.
4: Yeah, I was elected the same day as Sadiq Khan, and we understand... He was the first Muslim mayor, first directly elected Muslim mayor in Europe. So it was a day for British politics. Hmm. Not that it makes me special. It just, <laughs> it's just what happened. Tell me why you decided to run for office. Well, I'd always wanted to make the world fairer. You might say I grew up poor. Uh, Mum was a single white woman, 1970s, not much money, brown baby on the way, unmarried. And we had some experiences growing up that made me look on the world, and I just wanted the world to be fairer. So I was always looking at politics, always looking at a way of changing the world. (laughs) That sounds very bug grand, doesn't it? And politics was one of those ways. Journalism was another of those ways I thought we could do it, actually. And there are some documentaries about, actually, your journey to elected office, correct? Yeah, there's a couple now. One was made by my niece, who's American. It's called Reaching for Greatness. She's a Drexel graduate, and she's gone on to win quite a few awards with it, actually. And that's about 15 minutes and then there's an hour and a half documentary called The Mayor's Race, which is a play on maybe in, you know, my racial identity right. and me racing well done. for office. Well done. I didn't come up with a title. <laughs> the producers yeah. did. And that's an hour and a half. And that follows the fact that I ran in 2012 for mayor and I lost. And then I ran again in 2016 and won. So for the story writers out there, it makes for a great story, I suppose. So tell me about Bristol. Where is it in the UK? And tell me about your town. Well, it's um, just over 100 miles uh, west of London. Um, It's the city I grew up in, historically it's a port city, so historically it's been very international, it's part of the triangular trade as well, over the years it's developed into a very wealthy city, big finance, banking, legal uh, profession, and today that carries on but there's a huge creative sector, um, two world-class universities, an airport, the port's still there, Um, a very vibrant city, often voted uh, the best city in the UK to live in. Last year, it was on the New York Times top 52 cities to visit in 2018. What's so special about Bristol? Um, It's probably the dynamism, the culture, the diversity. There's a lot of green space. Mm. So it's a major city, half a million people in the UK. People talk about the quality of life quite a lot. But for me getting elected as well, one of my uh, key positions is we have to have integrity when we talk about that. So all those stories are true. Bristol's one of the tech centers of the UK, the UK's number one smart city um overtaking london a while ago a third of the world's natural history broadcasting over a third comes through bristol or blue planet and planet earth and all that so it's fantastic and all that is true but one in four of our kids live in poverty we have a housing crisis you know 500 families in temporary accommodation 20 percent of kids in nutritional poverty we have a part of the city among the highest numbers of people that go on to higher education in the uk and in the same city We have an area with among the lowest number of people going on to higher education. So we have great wealth, great aspiration, a fantastic profile. But like many cities, we face the challenge of how we do urbanization while taking everyone with us. What's
0: the demographic background, uh, the racial makeup of Bristol? Well,
4: it's about 18 percent. In the UK, the term people use is black minority ethnic, which includes uh, black people, Asian people, and actually Depending on how people flex it, white Eastern Europeans as well, which is probably quite interesting to African Americans uh, and <laughs> Americans at definition. But Black minority ethnic is about um, sixteen to eighteen percent. But the school population is a third over thirty three percent. So that demographic change is coming through uh, very quickly. So, Your Honor, it's interesting that you mention that because you I'm... You call me Marvin,
0: by the way. Will yeah. do, absolutely. <laughs> it's interesting because I'm a big fan of watching Question Time, Prime Minister's Questions every Wednesday. And some of the major topics that come up have to do with austerity, budget cuts in education, health care, um, police protection, um, lack of infrastructure. Prime Minister uh, May would take a lot of heat from Jeremy Corbyn and others about knife crime. Uh, Rough sleeping, which uh, if Americans aren't familiar, that's when you're just sleeping out in the elements without
4: shelter around you.
0: Can you talk about uh, some of those major issues? Because you kind of went on that, that Bristol is great, but then we've got a lot of problems.
4: Yeah. Well, like most cities around the world, the challenge mayors all over the world are facing is how do you move into this era of rapid urbanization, you know, by 2030? So 70% of the world are going to be living in cities. But in a way, how do we face that urbanization without populations getting more sick, more fragmented, bringing the housing supply without compounding um, social instability because of that social fragmentation, uh, without growing gaps between rich and poor and making sure we bring the housing supply through and in a way that doesn't destroy the planet? So we face all these challenges. But I must say, my national government have pursued a policy over the last nine years of what they call austerity, their challenge of what they say is about needing to get on top of the national finances, they've stopped spending money. And the key target of their cuts has been local government, which they see as a second tier of political leadership. I actually suggest that it's cities where there's real political leadership going on, where we're getting real stuff done, not sitting around asking questions and, you know, we need laws, but sometimes, you know, debating over legislation is not actually about real delivery. Mayors are doing real delivery. What's happening is that if we have to cut, say, um, investment in children's mental health, it will cost us down the line. Sure. So they're disinvesting in the population, uh, disinvesting in the health, in the educational abilities and in the future of our country. I think it's very short-sighted And to be perfectly frank, it's a struggle to think that people who get paid so much so often are making such bad decisions. So
0: an ounce of prevention is more than a pound of cure, Frederick Douglass said.
4: Right? It's easier to raise a strong child than fix a broken man. And unfortunately, that's what the approach our government's taken. They've taken no account of the cost of the cuts. If we are forced to cut a job that costs us forty thousand pounds a year, then on the face of it, you save forty thousand pounds. But if that person's in a family that ends up disintegrating, losing their home, you know, moving school, needing mental health health services for depression, the cost begins to get turned up in other places. So Mayor, I want to dive a little more
0: deeply into the points that you've been making in that we've had these austerity budget cuts, um, which has really, um, for lack of a better word, savaged these communities. But there is a criticism that whether it's labor or the Tories or here in the United States, whether it's Democratic or Republican, that even when certain political parties are good on the rhetoric the outcomes
4: aren't that much different for those people who are marginalized. So there's a couple of things about that, because I hear that phrase a lot, and I don't think it's actually true. There is a broad sweep in the world where, first of all, is to understand that what people receive from a country or a city is not the result of decisions made in government alone. You know, what people receive is the result of decisions made by government, business. If government had its hands on every lever, then you could just point the finger at, you know, government leadership and say everything that's happened in my life is down to you. The fact that my life is not improvement is down to you. It's not. It's down to what goes on in global markets as well and many things that are beyond the control of governments. Now, that's not to let governments off the hook. It's just to say, actually, that the electorate need to mature. And to be perfectly frank, and this is not about you, but journalists need to mature as well because it's an easy game to set up the fight and to, you know, say both from, sides do it from a profession that isn't trusted journalists point to politicians that are not trusted right? and kind of deflect that overarching mistrust of public institutions. I would say also a friend of mine, African-American friend of mine, said some years ago, I don't vote Democrat because they'll do anything for me, but I know they won't do anything to me. Mm. Right? I used to think that was quite cynical, but now I think that matters. Right. Because actually, what we're seeing is a collection of government policies that are actually harming poor people. So it's the middle classes have the luxury, well, maybe not even over here because they're being squashed here as well. But it's the wealthier middle class that have the luxury of saying, it don't matter who I vote for, I get the same. Because actually, their life isn't dependent on a proactive government. If you are particularly vulnerable and you are dependent on children's centres, you are dependent on support for parenting and children's mental health, or you are dependent on the government's position on welfare, then a different party in power can make all the difference in the world. It can mean the difference between having a home and not having a home, uh, surviving and not surviving. So I think it's a luxurious position to be able to say it doesn't matter who's in power, because I just don't think that's true. What I would say is sometimes people expect and I'd say this around Barack Obama, people expected radical change very quickly, right? Sometimes the framework for assessing political success is not whether someone's made radical change, but did they stop bad things happening? Go back to my friend's comment, right? Sometimes the success is just protecting people from a global from a global onslaught of hostile forces, right? That would undermine your heart. And people need to mature. get their head around that a bit more.
0: You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Steve Bynum speaking with Marvin Rees. He is the mayor of Bristol in the UK, and he is the first person of African descent to be the mayor of a city in Europe. You were speaking about politics and um, uh, as we should say, like the Hippocratic Oath, first, do no harm. There's a lot of criticism of the Tory government, and especially in light of Theresa May's resignation and the possibility of Boris Johnson becoming the next prime minister of Great Britain. Uh, What does that signify to you? What does that mean to you when you think about the possibility of a
4: Johnson premiership? So I'm going to say something that may be amusing, but it's not meant to be. I think Boris Johnson is a classic example of us being a socially immobile country, Hmm. All right. We share the honour with the US, by the way, of being a very socially immobile country, that your parental background is the single most effective indicator of where you end up in life. Uh, the British elite reflects background more than it reflects merit. But social immobility is often thought of in terms of poor people not having the opportunity to ascend. I want to say it. it's also reflective of the fact that less competent people who were born into privilege don't descend, Right. And Johnson was born into privilege. You know, he comes from a background and a schooling where people essentially offer up the premiership on a plate. Right? And he's trying to step into that world. I think is actually not just policy-wise a potential disaster, but I think what it says about our society is one that I find really disheartening, but not one that surprises me. So, Marvin, let's talk about that. It's easy to look at someone like Boris Johnson or Donald
0: Trump or characters like Bolsonaro in Brazil or Duterte in the Philippines and we look at these populist movements that are on the rise and on the move. But these movements are also popular and what I think is missing, and you as a former journalist, I think you would agree because you touched on this earlier, is that we've missed a great big part of the story. We look at the who, but we don't look at the why. Can we talk about some of the ways that these large groups of people have been failed? And as a result of those failures, you've seen a door opening for people like Boris Johnson, like these far-right parties, what just happened in the European parliamentary elections, where they made gains, not as big of gains as some people thought they would, but that there seems to be this movement, and most importantly, that these parties
4: and leaders, they have support. Yeah, and I understand their support. I understand why people are desperate. The way I think about Brexit is, I keep saying, it's the wrong answer to the right problem, right? When people talk about being left behind by globalization, feeling alienated from their political system and other public institutions, not trusting experts, you know, when they talk about not having access to public services, they're right. That's going on. My point has been that Brexit ain't going to solve your problems. Boris Johnson, uh, Nigel Farage, Donald Trump ain't going to solve those problems for working people and for poor people. Show me where their track record is over the last, you know, over their life course of ever talking about economic inclusion, uh, social justice, fairness, tackling health inequalities, education inequalities. There is no track record. But can I also bring a challenge back into the journalistic profession as well? Most people don't interact with real politicians. Most people interact with the journalistic interpretation of politics. And I think there's a very dangerous uh, feature of journalism at the moment where it's competing with Twitter and social media for its audience. Right, You've got to generate the clicks on the website. And Barack Obama in his book, Audacity of Hope, talked about so often, and I fall prey to this, that someone goes in the press and says, the deficit is 10. Someone else says it's 30. The story is not, actually, it's 10. The story is, this person says it's 10, that person says it's 30. There's a fight going on. Let's report on the fight. And a friend of mine used to be an editor of a radio station, the one I used to work for. And I had big discussions with him about this because he would broadcast stuff. And I would say, but... Why didn't you test that with them before you broadcast it and put it in the public domain? He said, well, that's your job, Marvin. You've got to counter it. I said, no, you're a journalist. You're not just a recorder who regurgitates lies and then ask me to come and counter it because then your story is these politicians are always fighting. If you're a bit more discerning about what you printed and what you broadcast before it went out, then actually people would have more of a handle on truth. One of the challenges, these people operate in a world of binary truths, well, binary lies as well, right? So you've got this unholy triangle journalists work in the world of conflict because that generates clicks right in that sense you've got to blame the public they want conflict and click that's what they click on so that journalists are feeding that appetite politicians get rewarded for serving up conflict right so they serve up conflict as well as knowing that that's how they generate and this unholy triangle in which everyone is guilty is taking the quality of our civic discourse down and these charlatans who are now turning up you know, feeding on that disappointment are just playing on that field. Whereas the real world of leadership is a lot more nuanced. There's a lot of gray areas. You're dealing with a Sudoku puzzle with interdependent parts, but we're losing the ability of a, as a society to deal with complexity. And that is a very uh, dangerous context within which we try and have grown up politics because it undermines the ability to have grown up politics. You know, but when your answer goes beyond 20 seconds like mine, people say, well, well that's too long. I just need a 15 second clip. The world doesn't get run by 15-second clips.
0: No, not at all. And Mm. speaking about journalists, you really took it apart well when you said that you can't put all the blame on the politicians. We have this triangle uh, you're in Chicago. Uh, you participated in the Pritzker Forum on Global Cities, and you were in a panel with our new mayor, Lori Lightfoot. And uh, I'm sure you discussed a number of issues that you're both grappling with similarly. But one thing that's really interesting is that when you talk about accountability, Lori Lightfoot won running away. I mean, it was sort of like 75, 76 percent, but only 25 to 30 percent of people voted Can you talk about what you discussed at this um, panel discussion with Mayor Lightfoot and what does it say about citizens and our accountability for the various messes that we're in?
4: So I just say it's a collective – in many ways, one of the challenges I put out there, maybe politics isn't merely this corrupt thing that goes on over there. I think there is an element of that. But actually, it's a distilled reflection of what we are as a society right now. But what we discussed in the panel was actually the need to take the way we run the world into its next iteration. And I will not to be too grand about it. But I think what we're witnessing at the moment is that national governments working alone are not equipped to cope with the world the way it is. Um, A former mayor of New Jersey said to me recently, we've got the best 1950s model of government we could (laughs) hope for. The problem is this 2019. The border's moved on. So many things are post-national. And, uh, you know, nations talk in terms of borders and blockages and walls, in your instance. Actually, most things transcend that. Climate change, migration, you know, inequality, uh, the challenges that all mayors face. Political instability is post-national in many ways. And what we were arguing was that we need global governments to move into its next iteration. And that will mean the leaders of cities and international networks of cities as equal partners in shaping national and international policy. So we've got to have the nation state. But there needs to be some new voices at the table as a matter, of course. And I think that's the urban voice that is going to have most of the world's population.
0: Marvin Rees is the mayor of Bristol, and he's in Chicago and participating in the Pritzker Forum on Global Cities. So you're a former journalist. Yeah. And in this discussion we've had, you've been pretty harsh on journalists. and I'd say honest. Well, <laughs> full disclosure. Full disclosure. I tend to be as well. I believe that we have a role to play in um, how our society develops beyond just presenting what people may call objective facts. A journalism professor and historian once said that objectivity is not approaching something with an empty mind, mm. but it's approaching something with an open mind and that we still have our biases and our subjective points of view, which whether we realize it or recognize it or not will impact how we cover the news, Absolutely. what decisions we make on what is news mm. and who those audiences will be. So tell me a little bit about your journalistic background
4: and how it's helped you
0: as being a, a policymaker.
4: Well, I would say, interestingly, the description... I would say I'm a city leader. Mayors are required to be city leaders, mm. not merely policymakers. Yeah, of course, you've got to have policies, but you've got to build relationships and get things done. Sure. I mean, the way it's helped me, I think, is practically in terms of talking to journalists. But also, I, I have that experience. I mean, I went to work in a newsroom um, a black man working in the BBC, one of the, you know.
0: Not that different from a black man working in NPR, trust yeah, me.
4: Yeah, you know, it's a politically progressive, but nonetheless, organization that hemorrhages black and Asian staff. we used to, and I joined as a band five, right? I left after four and a half years as a band five, having experienced a three, four thousand pound pay rise in four and a half years. Within five years, I was at Yale University as a world fellow. Within 10 years, I was mayor of Bristol, But my experience at the BBC was one of um, professional stagnation. So what you're talking about is what uh,
0: many of my colleagues describe as the black tax.
4: Yeah. I also experienced sharing stories that you talk about. You know, we have a worldview. And there comes a point at which someone sits behind a desk and says, what you've just told me is not a story. Right. My audience doesn't want that. But their judgment is based on their background. You know, And in the end, you think, actually, I see the world in a very different way to this person. And what I'm saying is a relevant story right now. They're saying is not a relevant story. So as a journalist, if your currency is the ability to bring new ideas and questions and get them on air, but you're constantly being rebuffed, they then begin to assess you as less competent and less able. And you begin to self-doubt after a while. You know? So, again, just working on the inside and seeing how that worked, um, seeing a sausage factory of news as well. Seeing the desire to pick up on the conflict and the division as well feeds in. Now, that's not to say there aren't fantastic journalists. There are. It's an amazing profession, and I think it sits alongside political leadership as a key institution. Like I said, most people interact with journalists. That's the framework through which people engage with the world, understand it. And when it's done well, it's out of this world. And it's been critical. I mean, think of Watergate. You know I mean? It's the, it's the massive piece. But the power and the significance of its success There's a flip side to that is in the power and the significance of its failures. You know, it can't be underestimated.
0: So you just referenced uh, one of the greatest American political scandals, Watergate. I wanted to uh, discuss a political scandal in the UK that hits close to home for you, and that's the Windrush scandal. First of all, can you talk about your family background and what Windrush is and how it resonates with you?
4: So Windrush refers to that first ship that came from the West Indies with people after the war. The UK had been blitzed out. Bomb needed to be rebuilt. We needed bus drivers and nurses. And Britain went to the colonies, uh, across course Asia and the West Indies, and asked people to come to the motherland and help rebuild the country. The ship that came in, the first one was the Windrush. Hence, you got that Windrush generation. Uh, 19, I think it was 1958 first came in. So my background is I'm mixed race. My mum is... English, Welsh, my granddad's Welsh and before his mum was Irish and then on my dad's side, he's Jamaican. He arrived in England as a 12-year-old from Jamaica and the Windrush scandal is simply that after a number of people being in the country for a long time, it seems like government put one foot in front of the other and decided to start telling a number of people that a growing up here worked here their whole lives that they had no right to be in the country and started deporting a number of people and lives were destroyed by that actually um, you know when people being sent to countries that they had no purchasing they, they hadn't been there for you know so similar to our dreamers here in the united states could be yeah but sent back and what does that mean my position in the uk is one that i enjoy sharing with people because they don't always see it immediately that you know my mum is white and my family go back in bristol for centuries i've got more blood purchase in my city than (laughs) than many many people but what i will share that in that context is the way the whole windrush scandal played itself out just reminds me that someone some point will say yeah but what about a full english person you know a real english person so if you think about identity and belonging as a series of concentric circles i'm not in that center circle in other people's eyes according to some people I'm very aware of that and I've been aware of that since I was a child but at the same time I'm aware of it but that makes me all the more vociferous in asserting my the fullness of my Englishness Uh, the way I describe it is I'm full English I'm full Jamaican I'm full Welsh and I want to be fullness in my Irishness but celebrating any of those identities does not take away from any of the others I'm all of those things at the same time but the national debate around identity and belonging can't cope with that kind of dynamism I think cities can. Marvin, last question. Um, Why should
0: Americans or anyone who's listening to you right now, if they feel like, well, what's happening in Bristol has nothing to do with me or what's happening in Paris has nothing to do with me and we're only concerned about what's happening within our borders or the farther away people are, the less I care about them. What should they know about this interconnected world and why it matters that on a global level we try to solve these problems?
4: Well, I think I, I learned as a kind of by the time I was 19, never to trying to convince anyone to care about anything. Right. The board is the way it is. If you don't care, you don't care. That's your journey. Right. Because there's a proverb. Right. Don't cast your pills before swine. I'm not calling anyone swine. But there's, a, <laughs> there's a proverb. And I, you know, after as a young person, I'd spend hours just laboring over and you end up really exhausted and you're never going to win that debate. There's a time to say, you know, this ain't a debate to be had. But if you've come across people that are to be conversed with, then I think you, know, you should indulge in it. What I would say is, one, it's the right thing to do. I don't think human beings are isolated atoms in terms of the great faiths of the world, but also just human decency. We are interdependent and uh, we should care. Um, secondly, there's a political reality to it and a physical reality You know, it's like the butterfly effect people talk about. What happens on the other side of the world comes to bite us, whether it be migration, political instability, political weakness in countries, then people end up flooding out of vulnerability to terrorism, uh, climate change. There are no isolated spots in the world at the moment. We are collectively interdependent. And if we don't take care of our neighbour, at some point it will bite us or it will bite our children or our grandchildren on the bum. So uh, we need to be on top of this. Marvin Rees
0: is the mayor of Bristol in the UK. He is the first person of African descent to be the mayor of a European city. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Tomorrow on Worldview, we'll have Basel and the Supernaturals, famous musical group. and We're going to hear some sounds for our Global Notes uh, segment, so stay tuned for that. And also, as you're we approaching vacation time, we're going to talk to a National Geographic reporter about the hidden costs of your tourism when you go abroad on safaris and wildlife tourism and such so stay tuned for that tomorrow on worldview worldview is produced by julian haidat thank you to ashish valentine and jenny friedland for production assistance and mike gilmore for engineering i'm steve Bynum in for jerome mcdonald we'll see you tomorrow you've been listening to worldview on wbez
2: 91.5 fm